Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We just prayed, and now we're going to study Matthew 7, and we left off right around verse 15. So, um, the backstory here on Matthew 7 is there's a little portion at the beginning on judging people, and that we ought to judge with a righteous judgment and not be judgmental for that sake. Um, then there's a whole section on prayer, starting in verse 7, asking, seeking, and knocking, the persistence of prayer, uh, because we need it. Um, and since we're good parents and we know how to give good things to our kids, Jesus says, how much more will God, who's the ultimate good father, give to you what you need and answer your prayers? Then we had verse 13 and 14. Um, let's look at that for a second. Um, just to review, this is a section I told you last week. Um, uh, we talked about the terrible twos. You've heard about the terrible twos with kids. Well, these aren't terrible, but these are a series of dualisms or twos. There are, uh, for example, in 13 and 14, two gates and two ways or roads. Verse 13 says, enter through the narrow gate. And the word narrow is constricting. It really literally means the difficult one. Don't take the easy way. For wide or easy is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, meaning hell. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road or way that leads to life and only a few find it. So we covered that last week. All I wanted to say about it is that the that there are not many paths. There really are only two. Jesus is the gate or the door himself. He calls himself the door in the Gospel of John. But the other way, and there's only one other way, is humanity's way. I get wherever I'm going spiritually. By the way, these are religious or spiritual ways. It's not careers because then we would have plumbers, electricians, artists, musicians, whatever, um, cooks. This is spiritually speaking. There's really only two ways. I do, D-O, something to get there. That is every other world religion. It's Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, even Judaism has been perverted to make it be something you do so that God will owe you and you get to heaven by what you do. A commonly held belief among unbelievers is if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, God will let me into heaven. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a rapist. I'm probably okay. It couldn't be more further from the truth than that. Uh, so they are religious or spiritual ways. Jesus' way is harder. It's more narrow. You have to leave some things behind to go there. The broad way, uh, some translations call it, is easier. If you took a poll, it would be the most popular way. That's the I do it way. Uh, it is earned salvation one way or the other. And the sign on that broad gate says this way to heaven, this way to nirvana, this way to wherever you want to go. That's what the sign says, but it's wrong. It's mislabeled. So uh, there are only a few that make it 
to heaven. We learn in this passage and others that more people end up in hell than end up in heaven, unfortunately. Christians ought to have that as a burden that we are witnessing wherever we can so that we take as many people with us, of course it would be God taking them, not you or me, to heaven and witness and what have you. So it's all the cults, all the religions, all the human philosophies, D-O. Um, I have a feeling that if you could picture the gate, it would be beautiful and big and attractive and uh, covered on the news very favorably. And then the narrow gate might be kind of ridiculed, the way of Jesus Christ. Um, we already talked about that and that. So let's dive into verse 15. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Wow, good one. And those of you on Zoom, Amen from Zoom land. I like that sign. Wave. Okay, beautiful. All right, we're in Matthew 7, and we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Jesus is teaching about false prophets, and he's going to use the analogy of trees and fruit. We'll talk about it. Let's read the passage. Verse 15, Matthew 7. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them or know them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Obviously, the rhetorical answer is no. Verse 17, likewise, every good tree produce or produces or bears good fruit. Makes sense, right? But a bad tree bears bad fruit. Now he's going to really lay it out. Verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruits, he repeats, by their fruits you will know them. This is a chapter that started with saying, do not judge or you will be judged. You'll be judged the same way you judge others. And yet here's another example in this same chapter that requires some judgment, some discernment. Because if I say, beware of false prophets, if you're thinking, the first question would be, how do I know who's a true prophet and who's a false prophet? Strictly, yeah, he's holding up his Bible. Good one, Ken. You get an A minus tonight. Okay, and a yes, you've earned your way to heaven. Let's put it that way. Just kidding. Okay, so what's going on here? He just warned us about a broad gate, a broad way that leads to destruction, that leads to hell. Now he's going to tell you about the people who are advertising and leading people to the false gate. And they are false prophets, or fake, you might say. They would guide you to those places. The first thing he says is to beware, because they disguise themselves. Do you see that? Look at verse 15. Watch out or beware. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inside they're ferocious wolves. Sheep's clothing means it's a costume. <laughs> right? They're fakers. Interesting that sheep's clothing is wool. And the garb of Old Testament prophets was garments of, you guessed it, wool. So they play the part. They disguise that they're really not godly. 
They play the part of a sheep, but they are false prophets, false um, shepherds as well. Some of these false prophets, listen, are in it, in it for the money, the prestige, the power, the notoriety, my name, everybody knows my name, I'm on 30, 50, 500 stations around the country, whatever. Some of them, though, when we'll get there, verses 22 and 23, some of them that are false prophets are sincere and they're self-deceived. Those are the people we're going to read about who say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and do many miraculous works? And Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. They're sincere. Now, doesn't sincerity count? No. Isn't that odd? It doesn't. Let me give you an analogy. You wake up in the middle of the night in your somewhat disorganized house, and you have a splitting headache. You stumble to a cabinet in the kitchen, and you don't want to turn the lights on, and you open the cabinet, and you grab a bottle that you're sure is Tylenol, but it's actually rat poison tablets. But you're sure, you're sincere that it's Tylenol. Doesn't that matter? No, right? Whether you're sincere or not is great. It's good to be sincere with each other and with God and be real. But if you're sincerely wrong, you're still wrong. So you take three because you got a bad headache of those things and you end up dead because you took rat poison. It doesn't matter if you're sincere. What matters is what are the false prophets teaching and what are their lives like? That's the fruit we're going to talk about. Does it line up with God's word, the Bible? False prophets, some of them, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, are geniuses at twisting scripture just enough that it's confusing, and it sounds like they're right. So these are false prophets. Some are self-deceived. Some are in it for other reasons, but they're dangerous. They're vicious. It's the picture of somebody who's hiding who they really, really are. So besides the word of God and lining up their teaching, you also have to be a fruit inspector. That's what this passage is saying. By their fruit, you will recognize or know them. So now he's going to go into what seems like a little obvious, doesn't it? Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? What's the obvious answer? No, of course not. Um, do figs come from thistles? You know, we could go on. Do apples come from peach trees? The answer is no, no, no. What's the point? It's interesting that in, we're studying Genesis here in our church. And Steve has mentioned this, that, and this is true for living beings, animals, and people, but it's also true in um, the plant world. And that is that things, listen, reproduce after their own kind. Bears, two bears get together and they're going to have a, a young offspring, I can guarantee you it won't be a giraffe, a chicken, or a rat. There's no way. Bears produce bears. Two dogs get together. Now, they might be very different breeds. I get that, but they're going to have a dog, not a giraffe or a duck, right? Two people 
have an offspring, it's going to be a people. Sorry, you know what I'm saying. The same thing is true in nature. Pear trees produce pears, right? Uh, so what is he talking about here? He's saying by their nature, that will be exactly what the fruit is. So if these people are dangerous and they're bad, they're evil, they're rotten, they're unsaved, right? Later, he's going to say to these people, I never knew you. So it doesn't mean they lost their salvation at some point. They never had it. They're evil. They're unsaved. What would be an example of bad fruit? Example. Um, you find out that this guy has a ministry or this woman has a ministry and they are um, worth $700 million because they're fleecing the flock. They have air-conditioned dog houses. Remember that in the 70s and early 80s? We won't mention any names. Oh, let's mention names. No, I'm just kidding. Um, they are on their seventh wife, but he's a Christian. He's got a girlfriend besides his wife. He, they're living uh, a sinful life. Okay, number two, bad fruit. Their followers seem to be getting way off track with the Lord and Christian practice and the word, what they're teaching, what they're learning, and what have you. So you have to look at a ministry. Number one, what are they teaching according to the word of God? Number two, what is the person like their character? Because if they are a bad tree, they will produce others that are bad. It's a law of nature is what Jesus is saying here. You can't get any other fruit than the fruit that the tree is named for. Um, so every good tree bears good fruit. What's a good tree? We know what a bad tree is, a false prophet, an unbeliever, right? A good tree is a believer, okay? And that believer is going to produce good fruit. What's an example? He used to be an alcoholic. Now he doesn't drink anymore. That's positive. Good news. He's giving to others. He has changed his, God has changed his life completely. Good fruit. Um, he is giving money to people that need it. He is living his life in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Good fruit. You could name a hundred other examples. Good fruit is not necessarily, well, Harold has a church. Okay. And you know, they started out at 100 people, yeah, and it's 20,000 now. Has nothing to do with numbers. Nothing. What did we just read? Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that big numbers. Don't go by the numbers. I'd rather go to a church with eight solid believers than 20,000 people that are doing some crazy things. So don't you don't look at the numbers. So the fruit isn't necessary to look how big the church is. The fruit is, are the people growing? The numbers can grow. That's great. Are the people growing spiritually? Can they each say by going to this church or whatever institution they're going to, I'm growing in the Lord inwardly and outwardly, the way I treat other people, the way I look at the things that I have and what have you. So lifestyle is important. Are they, are they exhibiting the false prophet? Humility, 
Christ-likeness, righteousness, faithfulness, the content of their teaching, the effect of their teaching. We covered kind of all that. Are people growing in that church or is it just really entertaining? A lot of churches are really entertaining. Um, there's, I think I've told you there's a church in Houston. I don't know if it's still in existence. I heard about it several years ago that they have, they meet in a bar and the bar is open. Hard alcohol, everything. We just want to show people we're just like you. That's a compromise Jesus wouldn't have made, I have a feeling. If there's no obedience, then that's a sure sign. Um, I want you to notice also that the, let's see, where are we? Uh, a good tree can't bear, a bad tree bears bad fruit. Verse 18, a good tree can't bear bad fruit. A bad tree can't bear good fruit. There's no way, ultimately, fruit that honors God, not honoring the teacher necessarily. But here it comes, verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's that? It's hell. That's what it is a picture of. He's saying people are the trees and the ones that don't bear fruit are cut down because they're what? By definition, bad trees bearing what? Bad fruit. That's every unbeliever that has ever lived, whether they're an atheist or not. Even the atheist goes on that broad gate, which says my way, right? Even denying Jesus Christ. But we're about to see that the broad way that leads to destruction has a bunch of people who think they're Christians and they're not. It's kind of shocking. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Go back to the text. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay, good. Zoom, you guys doing good? Amen. Beautiful. Okay, we're to enter through the narrow gate. We're going to watch out for false prophets. Jesus warns about false prophets in Matthew 24 and elsewhere. In fact, Matthew 24, there's more warning about false prophets and false Christs than there is any other warning because they're everywhere. Everybody wants to get into the religious business. Also, those who are bad trees that are cut down and thrown into the fire, people that go to hell, can be people that are not antagonistic to or against the gospel. Surprisingly, it can be people that are neutral to the gospel that are on the fence, so to speak. I like Jesus. I like Buddha. I'm just kind of on the fence. That's enough to get you to hell. There's one way Jesus is so specific, Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. N Acts chapter 4, no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. One mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. You see how narrow Christianity is, but in a good way. We said last week, truth is always narrow. Um, we talked about that. One last thing, part of the reason why the road to Jesus is narrow is that you have to turn from your sin, repent, to Jesus Christ. There are people in the Broadway who, who are trying to repent of their sin, but they're not willing to turn to Jesus. There's people in the Broadway who are willing to turn to Jesus, but not at the expense of uh, denying themselves and their own free will. 
to do whatever they want. They're not willing to repent. They just want Jesus. There are churches that teach Jesus takes you anywhere you are. You don't have to change. He loves you just the way you are. Not true. Not biblically speaking. Little Billy Joel for you there. And no, I'm not taking requests. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Okay, we're going to keep moving. We're in Matthew 7. Um, but it's a scary thing that the trees that don't bear good fruit are cut down and thrown into the fire. The good fruit, last thing, and we'll move on, is both inward upward and outward, like everything else in the Bible, the three dimensions, inward, outward, meaning to other people, upward, meaning toward God. A, a Christian is a good tree producing good fruit toward God. Respect, humility, obedience, reverence, uh, worship, upward. Inward, God is changing them from the inside because they have the Holy Spirit. They are more drawn to the word and away from the pornography or the alcohol or the drugs or the anger, whatever it was, unforgiving heart they used to have. They're changing inwardly. Outwardly, they treat people differently. There's no looking down your nose at anybody because a real good tree, a Christian, knows that all they are is one beggar telling another beggar where they got free bread. There's nothing um, haughty, A-H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, about Christianity. There's no boasting, Paul says in Ephesians uh, and in Romans. Okay, I think we're done with that portion. So false prophets, there are many, many. Sometimes when I teach on false prophecies and false prophets and false teachers, I, in the past, have brought in lists of quotes. I didn't do it this time, but there are so many false people who call themselves Christians and have huge mega ministries who are teaching doctrines that the Bible does not teach. The whole word of faith movement. Have you heard of this? It's name it and claim it. All you have to do is speak reality into your life. You can make yourself rich. You can speak health into your body. This is a, a lie from the pit of hell. Um, let's see. There are uh, teachers that <clears throat> Benny Hinn, uh, made literal false prophecies, meaning prophecy has two meanings. One, predict the future. Thus saith the Lord, this is going to happen in three weeks kind of thing. That's a very small minority of what's called prophecy in the Bible. Most of the time it is saying, teaching God's, <clears throat> excuse me, his word. So a false prophecy would be Benny Hinn said, the Holy Spirit told him, I've heard the recording of it, I can give you the chapter and verse if you want it. In the 90s, he said, God will very soon kill all the homosexuals in America. Did he? No. False prophet. How many false prophecies does it take to make a false prophet according to the Bible? One. One. What's the penalty in the book of Deuteronomy for false prophets? Anybody know? Death. Are we supposed to do that? No. We're not under a theocracy anymore. But God will take care of them. Benny Hinn predicted in the mid-90s that Fidel Castro would die. <clears throat> Excuse me. He has died since, but he did not die in the mid-90s. 
false prophecy. You can't be 90% right if you're predicting the future for God. God never makes mistakes, never messes up. False prophecy is also teaching that instead of the Trinity, three, there's actually nine. Who said that? Benny Hinn. False prophecy is teaching like Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland, both word of faith teachers, taught that God is about six foot two and looks very much like a human being. Sorry, God is spirit. Wrong. According to, how do you know? The Bible. That's how I know. So they're teaching out of the Bible, but they're false prophets. We have to be on guard about them because they're all over the place. It's often about ego, often about money. There's often uh, sexual promiscuity and lust that accompany these ministries. Um, okay, now, verse 21. Here it comes. This is a little bit disturbing because I want you to notice these people think they're Christians. The setting is not now. It's not a thousand years ago. It's in eternity at the judgment seat of Christ. When this is happening, it's judgment day. Keep that in mind. Verse 21, Jesus talking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, whenever Jesus says that day, even in the Old Testament, that day, it's a euphemism, a symbolic way of saying judgment day, the big day. So it all comes down. Many will say to me, verse 22, on that day, Lord, Lord, there it is again, Lord, Lord, for emphasis. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, verse 23, I never knew you. Away from me, depart from me, you who practice iniquity, you evil doers. The tense in the verb is you who always are doing evil. Um, okay, then there's another analogy about houses. Remember, that's a bunch of twos. We're going to have two different houses with two different foundations and two different results in a storm. That's coming up, so stay tuned. Okay, go back to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not about what you say. Twice in this passage is the word say, and twice, twice is an, anal an uh, allusion to what we do. So it's not about what we say. Okay, what's Lord, Lord? That's kurios in the Greek. In the Septuagint, which is the old, Greek became eventually the street language of the day for a lot of the, that part of the world. The Middle East, because of the, the spread of the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire, and they spoke Greek as well. So the Jewish scholars, 70 of them, got together and decided, you know, we really should translate the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, to Greek. So sept, 70, S-E-P-T, septuagint. 
the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Wherever the word Yahweh appears, which is the name of God, they use the word kurios, now it's, which is Lord. Now it's true that that word can mean just a respectful sir. Thank you very much, sir. But in a religious context, it always means God. To be somebody's Lord meant to be, it's the opposite of being a, of a slave. A Lord would own slaves. Lord means boss or master. So these people are saying, Lord, Lord, twice for emphasis. God says to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. Um, in the Old Testament, David is mourning over his son Absalom, and he says the name twice, Absalom. Absalom. Do you remember? There's all kinds of times where the name is used twice. They're doing it for emphasis, but they're calling Jesus. And remember, who's judging the world? Jesus. That's the backstory to these verses. They're calling him Lord Jehovah. They're calling him God. And they're also calling him their Lord or their master. But he says they didn't do what they didn't obey him. Watch. Um, by the way, Luke 6, 46 says, Why do you call me Lord and do not do the things I say? Talk is cheap, right? That's going to come up in the next chapter, by the way. Talk is cheap. Anybody can say anything, right? So they're calling him Lord and they're not obeying him. Uh, they're saying it superficially. There's really no heart change, no soul change, no change of mind, no change of direction. These people are fake Christians, but they don't know it. Believe me, I bet you there isn't a church in America that doesn't have some people like this who think they're Christians and they're fooling themselves because they haven't read the word and obeyed it. Okay, so... Uh, we talked about that. These people say one thing and do another. But here comes the weird question. I just got to tell you, it's, I really worked hard on this, and I'm not sure what's right and what's wrong about the question I'm about to ask. Watch. We know these people are going to hell. That's what Jesus said. We also know they think they're Christians, right? There is, uh, well, I'm going to save that. Let's watch what they say. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, verse 21, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does. You see that? Not everyone who says, verse 21, but only the one who does. Oh, okay. So then are these people who do earning their salvation? No. Okay, only who, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so the first question is, what does it mean to do the will of God, Jesus' Father, God, who's in heaven? Well, it would take me months to go through the whole Bible and tell you God's will is in this book. Um, but Jesus says at one point, this is the will of my Father that you believe in him who he has sent. It's John 6, I believe. We are to believe in the Lord Jesus. We're saved by faith, not by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Saved by faith, believing. 
not saved by works, good works. Pause. Good works, by the way, are both positive and negative. Good works are positive. Good works are sharing with someone in need, sharing the gospel. Good works are also studying the word and praying and helping at church and obeying God positively. Good works are also negative. What do you mean negative? Stopping or curtailing slowly the bad stuff you were doing. The drunk prostitute who comes to Jesus is not saved because she stops being a prostitute and getting drunk. She's saved by faith. But the evidence, the fruit on the tree of that life is she used to be this, and now she's this. If you've been a Christian for a while, and I say to you, how has your life changed over these years? And you say, I'm pretty much the same person I was. I do the same stuff. Something's wrong. No growth. So uh, with birth, there has to come growth. But the works are the evidence of the fact that the person has been saved. The works don't save us. In fact, quickly turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to show you something. So from here, we're going to go to the right about, I'll say, eight books. That's a guess. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. The acronym I was taught is Go Eat Popcorn. Did anybody ever know, learn that one? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So Ephesians chapter 2, we're only going to be here for a second. I just want to show you something. Go to chapter 2 of Ephesians verse 8. How are we saved, Paul? Spell it out for us. This might be the best gospel three verses in the whole Bible. Everybody quotes 8 and 9 and forgets 10. Watch. Verse 8. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Stop right there. Grace is good things that God gave you that you didn't deserve, couldn't earn, and he didn't owe you. It's just good stuff that's a gift. That's how you're saved. Through faith. What's faith? Believing in God to the point that your faith has legs and arms, and you start to obey and act on the faith. Those of you that are here, those of you on Zoom can't see, but I'm sitting on a tall stool right now. Those of you that are here, you can see I believe this stool will hold my weight. I have faith that it will hold my weight. You know what the proof is? My legs are off, the, my feet are off the ground. 100% of my 193 pounds are on this stool. If I told you I believed that the stool would hold my weight, but I was sitting like this with a foot on the ground, you would think you know, he doesn't believe it. Faith has actions that accompaniment Faith alone saves us. Listen, if you remember nothing else, remember this. Faith alone is how we're saved, but real faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works. Abstaining from bad things, doing more good, according to the Bible, obedience, humility. Ephesians 8, uh, sorry, 2, 8, and 9. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Stop right there. In Greek, the and this refers to the last noun before it, which is what class? Faith. So this verse says you're saved by grace. You didn't deserve it or earn it. Through faith in Jesus. And this, the faith that you have, 
is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Did you know God gave you a gift of faith? No, I conjured it up myself. No, you didn't. Whether you know it or not, he gave you a measure of faith. Romans says unto each is given a measure of faith. Some people ask, well, then why are some people such holy saints and other ones not so much? The answer is, it's like a muscle. The more you exercise faith, the more it grows. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, first, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves is a gift of God, not by works. That's not how you get saved. So that no one can, there it is, boast. That's Christianity, but you can't leave out the next verse. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Notice, to do good works. Oh, to earn the salvation. No, it's the evidence of the faith that you have. To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Go back to Matthew. Just wanted you to see that. The people who thought they were saved needed to read 2 Corinthians 13.5, which says, examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. You can't know that if you don't know what the Word of God says, and then measure your life accordingly. So these people are saying one thing and doing another. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, verse 21, will enter the kingdom, only the one who does the will of my Father. What's the central phrase in the Lord's Prayer? You've heard me say it 50 times. Thy will be done. This is a person that's praying, God, you know what's best. Do your will. It's okay to ask him for things, suggest things, but ultimately you throw up your hands and you go, I know you're smarter than me. Do your will. Prayer is not telling God what to do. My will be done. It's asking God, what is your will in this situation for me? And then leaving it with him with the peace that he'll do the absolute best thing because he's a great father. Many are going to say on that day, verse 22, Lord, Lord, here comes the controversial question. Did they do it? Did they do what? Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In other words, didn't we teach the gospel in your name? By the way, your in Greek is emphatic in your all caps, in your name. Didn't we? I'm asking you the question. Did they? Did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, drive out demons, didn't we? In your name, perform many miracles, didn't we? Jesus does not say, no, you didn't. Doesn't necessarily mean it's an argument from silence. Doesn't necessarily mean they didn't do it. There are scholars who think these people and I'll show you the proof for it, and I'll show you the other side as well. There are scholars that think <clears throat> these people actually did preach the gospel, okay? But they never had a heart change. They just learned the words and put it out there, and they never really were changed. But let's take it the next step. Did we not drive out demons right? This is someone that's demon-possessed. This false prophet person who thought he was a Christian is saying, Jesus, it's judgment day. Didn't we cast out demons? Did they? Okay. Third thing, and do 
in your name many miracles. Can unbelievers, who by definition, by the way, are on the other team, Satan's team, can they do miracles? The answer is yes. The Antichrist will do lying signs and wonders, and people will eat that up. It's all the proof I need. There's the miracles. So the question is, did they? Did they cast out demons? Did they do miraculous works? Did they preach the gospel? Preaching the gospel is possible, but the congregation that heard them teach should have known they're not living it. They're a bad tree, okay? Probably that congregation wouldn't have grown much if they really preached the gospel. But I just gave you examples from Benny Hinn and Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland. And by the way, I could give you 50 other names. Joel Osteen. Let's go there for a second, shall we? One of my favorites. Not really. Joel Osteen has a multi, multi, multi-million dollar ministry, okay, and a popular TV program. He said, Jesus didn't pay for your sins and mine on the cross. I'm sorry, that's wrong. I know the word enough. If I didn't know the Bible, I'd go, oh, tell me more. He said, Jesus had to go to hell and suffer with Satan and the, and the demons torturing Jesus for three days. Does that sound right to you? You know the Bible or you wouldn't be here. Wrong, false prophet. Come on, Joe, he's got big numbers. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. He bought the stadium that the Houston Rockets basketball team used to play in. It's huge, huge ministry, huge following, false prophet. Nice looking guy. I wish I could preach as well as he does. No notes, just says such beautiful oratory. Problem is, it's wrong, right? It's lies. Jesus didn't pay for our sins on the cross. Wrong. So all kinds of these people, does he know that he's a false prophet? We can't get into that. The question is, is there some gospel in that church? Yes. Do they throw Jesus's name in now and then? Yes. Scripture? Yes. When it suits their desires. But did they cast out demons? Did they do miraculous works? I think it's possible they did miraculous works. The one that has me puzzled is, did they cast out demons? Here's why. Jesus casts out demons. And the Pharisees say to him, oh, you know how he's doing that? He's Satan himself. He's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. That's how he's doing it. Jesus says, do you remember? Satan cannot cast out Satan. That's a house divided which cannot stand, right? Remember that? So it doesn't make sense to me that people that are evil would cast out demons unless they think they cast out demons and they were wrong. There are people that are so into demonology that if you <coughs> cough, they say, I rebuke the demon of coughing from you, Joe. There, you're healed. You haven't coughed in over four seconds. Is that a demon possession? I don't think so. So um, 
Matthew 24 talks about false prophets and false Christs doing signs and wonders. Matthew 12, by the way, is the house divided where Jesus says Satan can't cast out Satan. So they may have thought they cast out Satan's, uh, Satan or demons. Um, God put a word of prophecy in Balaam's mouth in the Old Testament, even though he was a false prophet for his own reasons. Um, uh, say, uh, the Antichrist is able to summon fire down from the sky. That's a pretty good sign and wonder. Lying signs and wonders, 2 Thessalonians 2. So um, the conclusion, oh, there's one more passage we need to look at, Acts 19, after the break. Let's take our two-minute break right now and stretch our aging bodies. There's cookies on the table back there. And uh, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. There we go. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're in Matthew chapter 7, discussing these people who think they were saved. And they're telling Jesus, didn't we cast out demons, do miraculous works, preach the gospel, prophesy in your name? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity, who are sinners consistently. One last passage is Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 13. This is a weird story in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. Acts 19, 13. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits sorry, who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, try saying that with a mouthful of cookie. Seven sons of Sceva, a, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit, an evil spirit, answered them, Jesus, I know. And I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It's almost humorous, isn't it? These fakers are trying to cast out demons, and it didn't work out, did it? So it's possible that it was imagined or exaggerated, the whole demon casting out. But the important thing about this passage is they thought they were saved. So we go back to what is the basis on which we are saved? What is and isn't that basis? We read it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Do you remember? Saved by grace, undeserved through faith, not by what you do, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's been said all other religions are D-O, the broad gate. Do, do this and you'll get there. The eightfold path of Buddhism, that's what you need to do. And then you'll reach where you want to go. Do the five pillars of Islam. That's what you need to do. Do the Ten Commandments. Go ahead, do, D-O. Christianity is D-O-N, I think the N was backwards, E, done. Jesus did it. We receive it by grace through faith. What's your point, Joe? Look back at this passage. I want to show you a couple things between the lines. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay, good. Those of you on Zoom, are you still awake? 
Good, I see it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? You know what that is saying? Do. We did it. We did it. You know why you should let us into heaven, Jesus, these people are saying? Because we did A, B, C, D. We prophesied. We, You owe us. We did it. We did the job. Pay up. So there is, number one, a grace problem. They don't understand salvation's by grace. It's humble. These people are not humble. They're reciting their resume for Jesus as if he's impressed, right? A true Christian, even if they did prophesy in his name, cast out demons in his name, do miraculous signs. Paul did all of those. Peter did all of those. Many of the other apostles, right? Even if they did those things, when it gets to judgment day, um, there's a thing called EE, evangelism explosion. D. James Kennedy started it with others. They used to go, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, door to door, asking people this question. Well, several questions, but one of which was, if you were to die tonight and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? That's the scene we're seeing in Matthew 7. What would you say? Oh, suddenly you find yourself, you died and here you are. There's God. And he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Wrong answer. I've prophesied in your name. <clears throat> Cast out demons. <clears throat> done miraculous. <clears throat> I've done I have faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And by grace, I'm saved. And to the best of my ability, I've tried to obey him and you. And if I get into heaven, it's all because of Jesus and your grace. It has nothing to do with me. The good works, if I'm truly saved, simply prove my faith. But they're not, this is a Catholic word, you ready? Meritorious. Catholics believe that we are saved by faith. Wait, that's what Protestants believe. Amen. And the works that we do are meritorious. They have merit. They, God keeps track of how many works you do, and there must be a point at which that's enough. He's in. She's in. Wrong answer. Why should I let you into my heaven? God says to you, and you say, here's what I did wrong. Here's what Jesus did. He died on the cross for me. All my guilt was transferred to him. Therefore, I have his righteousness in faith. And I throw myself on the mercy of the court because of Jesus. That's the right answer. These people are spouting off their resume. But it already sounds to me, if you notice, the, the, the verbiage is negative. Did you notice that? Didn't we? Lord, Lord, did we not? It's almost like he's already said, you're not going, not going to heaven. The trap door is about to open. Please stand by. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't we? God says, it's not about what you did. Well, what is it about? He's going to tell you. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, and a lot of people point out, he never says you didn't do those things. Maybe they didn't matter whether they did them or not. Because the key thing is coming up in verse 23. Then I will tell them plainly, I never 
knew you. Now, God and Christ are omniscient. They know everything. So he doesn't mean, who are you? What's, what's your name? What's social security number? Let me look you up. He knows who they are. In fact, he knows all about them. Well, then what does he mean? He means, no, I never knew you in the sense of a, the proper, listen, relationship. What do you mean? There are people that I know. I've met them a few times. I, I know them, but I, I don't know them well, right? They might know me. Is your name John? No, Joe. Oh, okay, Joe. Nice to see you again. They don't really know me. I don't really know them, right? But we're acquaintances. Then there's other people that I know really well, and you know really well, right? So it sounds to me, at first glance, like it's kind of like business. What do you mean? It's who you know. You ever heard that? Trying to get a record deal in LA or get on a TV show and acting, and, or I'm trying to move up the ladder at IBM. It's who you know. Well, it is. It's whether you know Jesus Christ. But wait, these false prophets would say, did we not cast out? Did we not preach? We know Jesus. No, you know about Jesus. But there's no relationship. I could study Ken Davis's life here for the next five years and read all I could and interview people, his kids, and I've met his sons and, and his wife and other people and learn all I could about him. But if I never get to know him relationship, I can't say I know him. I can just say I know about him. See the difference? Okay, so these people are claiming that they know Jesus, and he says, I never knew you. And they say, oh no, we had a relationship with you, Jesus. Check the records again. There must be some mistake. But there's a nature of the relationship they're forgetting. What do you mean by the nature? Okay, listen. All of us are just people, right? So you can choose to be my friend and I can choose to be yours or just an acquaintance or you can hate me and avoid me and that's fine too, right? And we're kind of equals. I can't order you around and you can't order me around and we're equals, okay? But if we're in the army and Jim Foster here is the general there's a certain nature to the relationship. We can get to know him a little, but he's the general. He has the right to order you and I around any way he wants, and we don't have the right to order him around. And until that relationship is correct, we're going to be out of line in the army and we're going to be disciplined. Or you're not old enough, Jim, but if you were, say, 100 years old, he could be our father. You're not old enough, so don't worry. And as a father, fathers have authority over their kids. Kids don't tell their father in a, in a healthy family, here's what you're going to do for me, dad. It's the other way around. Son, go clean your room. The son doesn't say, dad, go clean the garage. Who are you? Okay. What's your point, Joe? The proper relationship is not Jesus is my buddy. Give me a high five, knucklehead. The proper relationship is not Jesus is my bellhop for whom I ring the bell and he does what I want. The proper relationship is not, uh, by the way, he is your friend, don't get me wrong, 
and he does answer prayer, but the proper relationship is in the first two words they said, which is what? Lord, Lord. When someone calls someone else Lord, that person looks at them and says, you are my servant. You are saying you are under me. These people were not under Jesus. They weren't considering their Lord or their Savior. They were trying to earn their salvation. Did we not? Did we not? Did we not? Okay, so uh, number one, there's a grace problem. They don't understand that you don't earn your salvation. They're trying to tell Jesus what they did to earn it. They have a grace problem. Um, isn't it interesting the, the analogies God uses for him, God, or Christ, and us. They're all similar. Listen, father, daughter, father, son, authority. He has authority over me. You call the shots. Listen, shepherd, dumb sheep, right? Lamb. Does the lamb ever go, here's what you're going to do for me? No. Bah. What's the other one? Lord, master, slave, or servant. In, e in every case, we are under him. He calls the shots. Without that relationship, he will say, I never knew you. I knew what you did. I saw you there, false prophesying and thinking you're casting out demons. But you never were under me in that proper relationship. Back to our analogy, Jim is 100 years old and he's our father, everybody in this room and on Zoom. Or he's the general in the army and we're all under him. He has authority over us. He knows us. We get paychecks through the army because he signs off that, yes, Dave and Mary did a good job. But there's people that aren't in the army or aren't his kids, Jim's kids. He has no authority over them, the people outside of Christianity. God doesn't. He does ultimately in judging, but he doesn't know them in the proper relationship, if you will. Okay. Um, let's see. The nature of the relationship is Lord-servant. The very word they used. Um, yeah, we talked about that. I'm trying to catch up with my notes here. I want you to notice these people did not lose their salvation. They never had it. How do you know? I never knew you. The Bible says Judas was never saved. By the way, part of why I was wrestling with this, did they cast out demons and preach the gospel and do miraculous works, is this. In this gospel of Matthew, Jesus at one point sends out the 12. Do you remember? and anoints them in a special way and tells them, you're going to cast out demons and you're going to preach in my name, heal the sick, blah, blah, blah. And they go out and they come back, do you remember, marveling at what they were able to do because of Jesus's power. Do you remember that? Hello, there were how many? Twelve. One of them was Judas. Did he do some of those things? Maybe God did them through Judas in spite of the fact that Judas wasn't a believer. I don't know, but I don't think so. I think he never knew Ju Judas. He never knows unbelievers. James 1, 22 to 25 says, hearing must result in doing. It's not enough to hear the word. You have to do it. Obey. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah. An obedient son or daughter. Yeah, we talked about Judas. Now, one commentator, I love this line, said, to say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, and not obey him is a Judas kiss. Remember, Judas kisses master. Both sides of the cheek. That's a Judas kiss. I'm here to betray you. It's not obedience. The result of faith is fruit, obedience, a more righteous life, um, salvation. Works, miracles prove nothing in and of themselves. Um, let's go back to the text one more time. Verse 23, I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you apart from, away from me, you evil doers, you workers of iniquity. What does that mean? Bad tree, bad fruit, period. Based on the context, right? Evil doers, is that a good tree? No. How do you know? Because bad fruit doesn't come from good trees. They're evil doers. The context, the Test tense of the verb is ongoing evildoers. It doesn't mean you sinned once nine years ago and you sinned last Thursday. It's habitual, ongoing lifestyle sin. You workers of iniquity, you're always sinning. You were never changed. You never had that lordship relationship with me. You never had the Holy Spirit given to you or he would have convicted you of that sin. That's why away from me. He's saying they're going to go to hell. Therefore, here comes the analogy. Now we're moving to another analogy and another two houses, foundations, storms. Read it with me. Verse 24. <clears throat> Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that's the proof that you heard them, right? He's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, verse 25, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. There it is again. But, verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, that's who these people were. That's the bad tree. If you hear it and don't put it into practice, you're like a foolish man, verse 26, who built his house on sand. The wind came, sorry, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Two houses, two foundations, two very different results. What's the house? A person's life right? You build your life on certain things. What's the foundation of your life? The bottom line. Is it making money? Is it having fun? Is it getting drunk? Is it sleeping around? Or is it the rock? Okay, that's what the house is. We get that. The storms, I believe, are, have a present tense application and a future one. The future one is the main one, which is judgment day right? If your foundation and theirs, they thought it was a well-built house, but it was on sand. Those people that said, Lord, Lord, didn't we? They're going to hell. So let's take this apart. Hearing and doing, yeah, we already talked about that. The 
It's funny because these two houses may have looked exactly the same when you looked at them, right? Most houses, you can see the exterior, right? The doors, the windows, the siding, you can see the roof in most cases. You know what you can't see very easily? The foundation. You ever had a home inspection? They got to go under the house to really look. We have at least one guy that knows construction here. You got to really get in there to look at the foundation. The foundation is important. I'm not saying the roof isn't. The windows, they're all important. But the fa- if your foundation isn't good, house is coming down. Okay, so building on the rock. So what are we talking about there? Keep your finger here and go to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to go a few places here to keep you awake. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay, good. Matthew chapter 12. Um, And what verse are we looking for, Joe? I don't know. I lost my place. Okay. Um, Verse 6. He says that one greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. By the way, the temple was built on, anybody know? Rock. He's calling himself greater than the temple. In the book of 1 Peter and in the Old Testament, the Messiah, Jesus, is, listen, the cornerstone, the stone of foundation that lines up with, every, every other stone has to line up with that one. The most important part of the house is the foundation. The rock is Christ. Now we want to go to 1 Corinthians. Yeah, chapter 10. So turn with me if you will, or just listen. We won't be here long. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going there now. Hmm, Boy, we really have to start in verse 1. He's going to go back. He's going to remind them about the Jews in the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers, he's talking about the Jews, were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the seas, talking about the Red Sea. The cloud was the picture, uh, a, a visual rep- representation of the presence of God. You with me so far? Okay, so that's the context. They, that's the Jews, were all baptized, in a sense, into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. Both involve water. They all ate the same, verse 3, spiritual food. What was that? Manna from heaven. John 6, Jesus claims to be the bread that came down from heaven. Okay, keep reading. And verse 4, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual, what? Rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Who's the rock that should be my foundation of what I build my life on? It's Jesus. Any other foundation is sand. Money, power, fame, good looks, achievement, gold medals, PhDs, sand, 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 sand. We, uh, my wife and I lived and our kids lived uh, in Rio del Mar, which is south of Santa Cruz. And um, we could see the ocean from our house and we could see the houses that were built below us, which were built on the sand. Our view was up high on a bluff, a cliff. My wife would have it no other way. Their view is like, the waves are right there. It's so cool. However, 
In the storms of 82 and 83, there were whole houses and whole roofs floating in the ocean because the waves just came over those houses and some of them just drifted out. We know a story about people that came to the house because they could see it's going to get hit. We better take some valuables and get out. And a wave came over the house, broke the window in a cathedral ceiling, that triangular window, broke that window, but not the lower windows. And the whole room they were in instantly filled up with water. And they were swimming in their family room. And finally, the bottom windows broke and it all drained out and they got the heck out of there, didn't take anything. What's your point? Building on the sand. Now, I know when they build on the sand, they go way down deep and pilings and concrete and sand. Build on the terra firma. You ever heard that? Firm ground, firm earth. Listen to Proverbs 10, 25. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. That's Christ. Don't build your life on anything else. The foundation was just fine on the sand until the storms come. The primary meaning of the storms is judgment day, future. But the secondary meaning is storms. What do you mean? I mean stuff in your life. I'm sorry, Mr. Sherino, it's cancer. I'm sorry there's been a death in the family. I'm sorry you've lost your job and you're wiped out financially. I'm sorry, but we have to amputate both your legs. I'm sorry, but I'm sorry. Storms variety of ways, right? And they do come, don't they? This side of heaven, we live in a fallen creation. You can expect storms, I'm sorry to say. Is everything going great for you? Enjoy it. It's going to change. <laughs> Are you in the middle of a storm? Christ is right there with you, walking on the water above the storm, right? He told Peter, come on. Peter walked above his circumstances until he concentrated on the circumstances and the wind and the waves and the rain, and he sunk, didn't he? The foundation of your life can only be Jesus Christ. There's no peace any other way. Second Peter, uh, 1 Peter 2 is the passage where Jesus is the cornerstone. So go back to the text. Everyone who hears these words of mine... Have you read the Bible? Have you heard the gospel? Have you heard Jesus? Yes, I've heard him. I've studied him. I know him. Yeah, that's good. But have you heard these words and put them into practice? That's the, the big difference. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. God's not kidding around with this book. These are not suggestions. This is the owner's manual for humanity. The manufacturer wrote this book, they would know best, right? If I tell you, oh, you bought a new Ford, you change the oil every 10 years. It's fine. What do I know? I would consult the manual. When do they say to change the oil? I would do that. This is the owner's manual. B-I-B-L-E, Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. I love it. Everyone who hears these words puts them into practice, acts on it, builds a life on it. The rain came down, the streams rose, there's a storm, and it didn't fall because the foundation's on the rock. You might get to the point, I hope you don't. I know someone who this happened to. 
where at one point in his life, he said to me, Jesus, at that moment, was all he had. He didn't have anything. He had lost everything, every person that he valued temporarily. And he said, he's laid in bed and thought, I know I still have you, Lord. Is just Jesus enough? Or do I need all the other stuff? And the answer is, when you really know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the answer surprisingly is yes, because all the other stuff is temporary. God will bring the people back, other people. Look at Job. Uh, that's the real test of faith is the storms of life. The ultimate storm is the judgment day. The foolish man builds his house on the sand. What's the sand? Anything except Jesus. You take your pick. That's the broad way that leads to destruction. There's all kinds of people on that road. Some of them are, think they're Christians. Some of them aren't. Some of them are atheists. Some of them are Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. It's the broad way, but it all goes to the same place. Yes, but the sign says heaven. Well, it's mislabeled by the deceiver. Um, okay, we're moving on. Okay. Uh, I think we've, yeah, we're done with that one, aren't we? Yes. The everlasting foundation of Jesus Christ. I love verse 28 and 29. Mind you, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. So he's ended the sermon with a crescendo in this symphony. Here's, his, here's the commentary now, because he's done now. He's done at the end of verse 27. 28 and 29 is Matthew commenting. When Jesus had finished saying these things, Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law, not like the Pharisees. Well, didn't the Pharisees speak with great authority? This is it. The answer is no. The Pharisees were famous for as is written from the rabbi who lived 200 years ago, I can't pronounce his Jewish name, but as he said, they always quoted other experts. Jesus has the audacity in the book of Matthew. Go back to chapter 6 with me. Now I'm turning pages here, and I'm the one that's lost. Turning back to chapter 6. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or is it the end of five? Hold on. Um, no, it's five. My, my bad. Sorry. Look at chapter five, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, he says authoritatively, like he's as if he's God. Once again, verse 33, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath. Verse 34, but I tell you, you see that? You have heard that it was said, verse 43, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, that's authority. He's not quoting Rabbi so-and-so from 200 years ago. He's God in human flesh with total authority. I said earlier that what's coming now is talk is cheap. What does that mean? It means anybody can say anything. 
If I tell you <clears throat> I'm the greatest basketball player in the world, I, there I said it. Some of you could believe it. I doubt anybody believes it, but maybe you do. To prove it is something else. Now he's done with the Sermon on the Mount, which is sort of the constitution of the kingdom. Starting in chapter 8, Matthew has assembled 10 miracles in a row because talk is cheap and Jesus is about to prove his authority. But I say to you, well, who are you? He's about to show them in chapter 8. So we've seen his genealogy, why he is fit to be the Messiah in chapter 1. We saw his miraculous birth. We saw the worship at his birth in this gospel and in Luke. But we also saw the opposition by Herod and others. We saw the forerunner, John the Baptist, who pointed to Jesus. We heard the testimony of God the Father when Jesus was baptized. Do you remember? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We heard that the Holy Spirit descended on him. That's all great. We've heard the wisdom of chapter 5, 6, and 7. Now he's going to prove it. He's going to do miracles, okay, of a variety of sorts. He's going to prove that he has authority over sickness. He's going to heal sickness. He's going to prove that he has authority over demons. Come out of him, boom, the demon leaves. He's going to prove that he has authority over, listen to this, nature. He can tell storms, shh, and it gets very quiet. And the apostles are blown away, right? He can walk on water and suspend the laws of gravity if he wants. Only God can do that. Nobody else. Um, he's going to ascend to heaven eventually. He's going to demonstrate omniscience that he knows all things. He knows what people are thinking and blows their minds when he says it. He's going to show that he has authority over death itself by raising people from the dead, and eventually he himself rises from the dead, even his own death. These are 10 miracles. They appear, most of them, in the other Gospels. Keep in mind, Matthew is very organized. He's kind of a nerdy accountant. He was a tax collector. Probably had one of those glasses things with the tape right here. He's very organized. What's your point, Joe? He's so organized, he's going to put these 10 miracles together to show you, yeah, talk is cheap, watch this. What's your point? They're not chronological. They don't happen in order. In the other gospels, they're more spread out, and then this happened, and he said this, and then there was a miracle. Matthew packs them together in a, Ken, he used a um, QuickBooks programmed, let's just have all the miracles print out. Here they are, starting in chapter eight. He's going to meet human needs and prove he's the Messiah. The Messiah in Isaiah 29 and 35 is predicted that he will do miracles. I am the Messiah. Great, Harold, prove it. Verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, we're just going to introduce this subject. It's a leper. We'll discuss it next week. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Wait, what mountainside? Chapter 5, verse 1 says he went on, on up on a mountain to teach. Do you remember that? Now he's done with the Sermon on the Mount. He's come down off the mountain. There's huge crowds following him just on the basis of the incredible wisdom he gave in chapters 5, 6, and 7 in that sermon. 
Verse 2, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests, excuse me, and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Let's just introduce the subject and we'll cover it next time. A couple things. Luke in his gospel tells the same story. Luke is a doctor and says that the man was, listen, full of leprosy. Leprosy was a variety of skin diseases, but full-on Hansen's disease, which is leprosy, started with, it was very contagious. It started with a lack of sensitivity in the hands or appendages, feet. Can't really feel much of anything. What continued was the rotting away of the skin. Legions, boils, sores, whatever, and eventually fingers, toes, even feet and hands would rot off. It was so unclean, considered by the Jews, that if you were a leper, you were a total outcast. What do you mean total? I mean, your family can't hang out with you anymore. Your wife, your sister, your brother, your parents, your kids, whoever, your best friend from high school you played football with, you can't hang out with anyone except other lepers. If you were in a coming into where people were around, they had social distancing. Six feet, you had to stay away from people and you had to announce unclean, unclean, meaning I'm unclean. Talk about embarrassing. This man has not been touched, hugged, hasn't shaken hands with anyone, hasn't had a kiss on the cheek from anyone. He is a total outsider. Now, are you thankful you don't have leprosy? Good. Me too. Let's pray. We're going to pick it up next time. We're out of time. Thank you, Father, for these lessons in the Sermon on the Mount, God. We, looking back, have the Word of God, the New Testament. We know Jesus is the Messiah. We've heard Help us to put it into practice through obedience, through faith, through the good deeds, not to earn salvation, but in response to the unbelievable gift of faith and salvation and grace that you've given us. We love you. Can't wait to see you, God. We are so blessed that we have found, thanks to your Holy Spirit, the narrow path, the narrow gate. We pray that you would bring us all the way to heaven. We can't wait to see you. In the meantime, use us for your glory vertically with praise to you and horizontally in all we do for others. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone on the other side of the aisle that you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, God bless. We'll see you soon.